I'm reading a single verse. It's not that printed in the bulletin, but from the 139th Psalm and verse 6, where we find David pondering the mysteries of the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God. And in the midst of his musing, he says this, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Most of us are aware that men of the sea have a vocabulary all of their own, one in which we find words not pronounced the way we would expect them to be pronounced from their spelling. In days of yore, in time of sale, a young man working his way through one of the Ivy League colleges hires on as a member of a crew of a sailing ship. And because he doesn't want it to be obvious that he's new at all of this, he has very carefully studied and memorized the names of things on the vessels. As the ship prepares to leave port on his first day on the job, he says to his fellow crew members with an almost studied nonchalance, I'll think I'll go forward to the forecastle and take a seat on the leeward gunwale where I can watch the topsail fill with air. He doesn't understand the peals of laughter that follow this naive declaration, and it's only later that he's very embarrassed to learn that there is no forecastle on a sailing ship. It's called the forecastle. That there is no gunwale, it's pronounced gunnel that there is no topsail, but rather a topsail, and leeward is pronounced by sailors, leeward. Many of us have become familiar with the quaint speech of sailors, and we found it in odd ways charming. Like the green college students, some of us have tried to learn to speak as they speak, if for no other reason not to be embarrassed in their hearing. But if we've ever wondered how these slurred words came to be a part of the standard nautical vocabulary, and if we've in the process also been reminded of the fabled fondness of sailors for such libations as rum, then the mystery of their speech is apparently solved, and some of its charm wears off. A part of nautical speech relates to the names that sailors give to boats and to ships. Carl and I have spent a lot of time around Michigan waterways, and in that time we've noticed the names stenciled on the transoms of boats. On the Black River in Port Huron, there is a boat that on weekends takes scuba divers out to explore Great Lakes wrecks, and very fittingly, someone has named it Diversion. Just down the river, there's another one named The Other Office, suggesting that when its owner leaves his place of business, he says to his secretary, Miss Jackson, if anyone calls, tell them I'm at the other office. Years ago, I heard about a young man who impressed girls that he was dating by telling them, I named my boat after you. One day, quite by accident, two of these girls met one another, and they got to talking about their boyfriends. And they recognized some familiar properties and recognized eventually they were dating the same boy. And then they began to argue about which one of them 
was most important to him. And one of them thought that she had satisfied that issue by telling her rival he named his boat after me. But when the other one said the same thing with suspicion, they went down to the marina. And there they found a boat. And sure enough, boldly stenciled across his transom were the words, after you. More than once, we've noticed a very fitting name, peer pressure. A man who loves both classical music and the water might well name his boat C minor. We call ours Straits Shooter, indicating our fondness for the waters of the Straits of Mackinac. And if a philosopher owned a catamaran, and a catamaran is either a sailboat or a powerboat that has two hulls, he might well name it paradox. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because that brings me right to the theme of my sermon this morning. Paradox is a word familiar to people who love words and ideas. A paradox is a statement or a story that contains elements to conflict with one another to the extent that if one of those elements is true, then all of the others cannot possibly be true. A proposition commonly used to illustrate paradox is this, nothing can be known with certainty. If this statement is true, then it can't possibly known, be known with certainty that nothing can be known with certainty. And the story frequently heard in the context of paradox is this, a man and his son are involved in a terrible auto accident. The result is that the father is killed and the son is seriously injured. He's taken to a hospital. He's examined in the emergency room. He's rushed into surgery where the surgeon looks at the boy and says, I can't operate. He's my son. And the mystery is solved, of course, when we learn that the surgeon is the boy's mother. Christian thinkers and students of the scriptures sometimes use the word paradox. It's a reference to the mysteries of our faith, to those thoughts of God that are above our thoughts, to those ways of God that are not our ways. The scriptures themselves reflect the difficulty of knowing God and the great gap that exists between his truth and our understanding. In the 27th Psalm, David wrote these words, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that I will seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. These words testify to the desire of this great and useful man of God to know God as fully as he can be known. And at the same time, recognize that this is a lifelong quest. The simultaneous knowableness and unknowableness of God is expressed in the 139th Psalm, where of truths about God, the psalmist said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Last week, I referred to the lament of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, where he said that we see through a glass darkly, indicating both 
the need for us to probe the mind and the character of God and the certainty that we will all go to our graves with our need to know not yet completely satisfied. In Revelation 4, we read that the Apostle John was given the opportunity to at least peek into heaven. There he saw a throne. On that throne, we are led to understand, sits God the Father. But John did not see the detail that he and you and I would like to see, but rather all he saw was bright, glittering, shimmering light. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul represents himself and the other apostles as being stewards of the mysteries of God. Those mysteries, those complex truths, those paradoxes associated with the faith that saves us are several. I'd like to look at a few of them with you this morning. One of them has to do with the triune nature of the existence of God or the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine, like many others we have names for and we have a place for in our system of theology, is nowhere plainly declared in the Bible. You will not find a chapter or a a paragraph anywhere in Scripture that says the Trinity declared and explained. Like many other teachings of the church, it's derived from the compilation and ordering of many passages that relate to a particular theme, in this place, the nature of the existence of God. And from these passages, carefully considered, we conclude that God is one, but also that this one God eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a great mystery. This is a paradox. There isn't a person in this room who can say, I understand the doctrine of the Trinity. I can repeat the doctrine of the Trinity. I can teach the doctrine of the Trinity. But I, and none of you, I presume, are able to say, I fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity. To say that there is but one God is an easy thing. To say that there are three gods is not quite so easy, but clear. But to say that there is but one God who exists in these three persons is to go beyond the limits of human understanding. And for those of us who believe it, to say with David that such knowledge is too high for me, I cannot attain it. There are those, sadly, even in the church, who make the limits of human knowledge and understanding the standard by which such ideas are judged and found wanting. May we never be numbered among them. It's important that we approach the task of inquiring into the nature and the will of God, knowing that there must be things about God, if he is God, that are certainly true, but just as certainly can never be fully grasped by human beings who live in time and space and with all of the limitations of sin. The fact that an idea is mysterious, that a doctrine is hard to understand, that a teaching seems paradoxical, does not make it false or unworthy of our acceptance. The doctrine of the Trinity is an example of one of those things that we eventually come to believe, not because it makes perfect sense to us, but rather because God has declared it to be true on the pages of his word.
A second of these mysteries or these paradoxes has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. From its very beginning, the church has taught both the deity and the humanity of Jesus of Nazareth. He is at once the Son of God and the Son of Man. As in the words of the Nicene Creed, he is very God, a very God, but he is also, and at the same time, very man, a very man. By the scriptures, we're instructed to bow before him and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. By these same scriptures, we're encouraged to find comfort from the fact that he lived among us in the flesh and was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sinning. Skeptics outside the church and false teachers in the church tell us that we can't have it both ways. They reason that no one can be both God and man, Therefore, either we are to worship and serve Christ as the living, eternal Son of God, or regard him as a good man whose teachings and ways are to be the pattern for our living, but he cannot be both human and divine, these skeptics and false teachers insist. As many of you know, the Bible anticipates their cynicism. The scriptures predict their sneering questions, their haughtiness, their smug certainty and it warns us against them. No human being, however wise or intelligent or educated or devout, will ever be able to fully understand the mystery of the incarnation. But no human being, however limited his mind and education, whose eyes have been lifted by the Spirit of God to behold the Son of God, and who has been led to follow the steps of Jesus through the days of life, will ever forget the glory of that vision or ever fail to be comforted by that fellowship. The Bible declares Jesus to be God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and that he became flesh and dwelt among us as the Son of Man. Not one of us in this place, no one in the entire church completely grasps the depth and the complexity of this mystery, this paragraph. Yet the newest and simplest of believers rejoice every time they hear it or think of it. Another one of those mysteries of our faith has to do with the elements of the communion service and the question, what are they? Are they actually the body and the blood of Jesus Christ? Or are they nothing more than symbols intended to remind us of his death? If a scientist were to examine this bread, if a chemist were to taste this juice, they would conclude that they are exactly what they appear to be, white bread and purple grape juice, nothing less and nothing more. Yet through its history, the church has taught that these things are in fact more than what the scientist and the chemist are able to discover. Theologies vary. Some teach that these elements already are or soon will become the actual body and blood of Christ. Others insist that the bread is nothing but bread and the juice nothing more than juice. But most believe that somehow 
Whether in or around or through these elements, Jesus Christ is present when we acknowledge and worship him in this way. If this bread were nothing but bread, if this cup were nothing other, then we would find no caution regarding their use inscribed on the pages of the word of God. But in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we find that caution. It is indeed a paradox to suggest that these elements are more than they seem to be to our senses. It's a mystery to teach that in ways greater than usual, Christ is present when we acknowledge him and the great benefits of his death in this way. This becomes another of those things that we believe, not because they make perfect sense to us, but because God declares them to be true to us. And because these things are true, you and I are instructed by the scriptures to come to this table only if we're willing to be honest with God about our sins, to confess them, to repent of them, and then to receive with joy and tears the amazing gift of mercy that Christ purchased for us on the cross. Because of the discomfort that these mysteries create in our minds, we tend to look at these complex doctrines and place the emphasis of our believing and teaching on one more than the other of their facets. In other words, instead of riding the theological fence, we're prone to jump off on one side or the other. For example, with respect to the doctrine of the triune nature of God, we tend to celebrate either the unity of God or the complexity of the nature of God, but not both. With regard to the humanity and the deity of Christ, we intend to spend more time and energy on one of those at the expense of the other. And about the elements of the communion service, most churches tend to emphasize either their holiness or their ordinariness, but not both. And that's true for one final paradox that I'd like to consider with you. If you're a student of the Bible and the theology of the church, you know that the character of God is extremely complex that God is known by a long list of attributes, of qualities made known to us in the scriptures. And in the Bible, we read of aspects of the character of God that seem paradoxical, almost contradictory to us. For example, we learn in the Bible of God's absolute final control over all events, but we also read that he holds man accountable for his participation in those events. There we read that God knows all things. But to our surprise, we also read that he delights in our prayers. There we're impressed by the terrors of his wrath and the horrors of his judgment. But we're also assured that he loves us who are his redeemed children. These revelations of God as a holy, wrathful God judge on the one hand and as a loving father on the other fit well into the category of paradox. And because we're uncomfortable with the tension of a paradox, we tend to stress either one side or the other side of his nature. In many churches today, the only side of God's nature that is ever talked about ever discussed, ever preached, 
is the loving side of his nature. Nothing is said about his wrath or his holiness. On the other hand, in a reformed setting like this, we're likely to place more emphasis on other aspects of the character of God, his holiness, his glory, his power, his transcendence, his wrath. And sometimes we forget that this holy God is also a merciful God. That this glorious God in heaven deliberately inclines his ear to hear our prayers. That this great and powerful God stoops to our weakness. And that this wrathful God is also capable of great expressions of love. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than on that cross on which God's Son died for my sins and for yours. And this idea of the love of God becomes all the more remarkable as we become better and better acquainted with ourselves. When we're very young, when we're very naive in our faith, we hear that God loves us and we wonder, why shouldn't he? He's my creator. I'm his child. I'm a pretty decent fellow. But then we become better and better acquainted with ourselves. We know more and more about the distance that we deliberately maintain from God about the indifference with which we regard him most of the time, about the hours and the days that go by without our kneeling in prayer or opening his word to be enlightened, the time when in our longings and in our thoughts we desire and do things that are repugnant in his sight. The better we know ourselves, the more we understand how extensive sin is in our lives. And the more remarkable the consistent testimony of Scripture regarding the love of God for us becomes. As we come to the table, let's remember that God is indeed holy and glorious and powerful. And the one whose wrath is to be feared above all else in life. But let's also be reminded of his mercy, of his attention to our needs, and of his love. Someone once said, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he said, this much. And he held out his hands and he died. Let us pray. Our Father, I pray that by your marvelous grace, by the inner working of your spirit, by the external testimony of your word, that you will not let it be so that any one of us come to this communion service without emotion. Here we pray that we might know your presence as we have never known it before. Here we pray that we might sense your holiness and your power and your glory, and that we might know your mercy and your love. And from here we pray that you would send us back into the darkness of a lost world, eager to be the light of that world. In Jesus' name. Amen.